Outside, should I run and hide? How do I take my company worldwide? Do you love the law? Did you watch Hee Haw? What's the weirdest thing that you ever saw? What's it like in court? Favorite sport? Can you help with my book report? Is my hair too long? Am I right or wrong? And do you mind if I sing along to anything? Ask Alan anything in the world. Hello, everybody. This is Alan Crone, CEO of the Crone Law Firm. Uh, coming to you once again with uh, Ask Allen, the podcast. And um, today my guest is a, a great Memphis lawyer and a great friend, uh, uh, Bill Walk. Uh, Bill is a personal injury trial lawyer. And I, I say trial lawyer because he tries cases. And that, in my estimation, that's what really makes you a trial lawyer. And it's a dying, I don't say it's a dying art, but it's, uh, it's a lot harder to get jury trials than when you and I were, were young lawyers, Bill. Oh, it absolutely is. And that's, it is a dying art because, you know, with mediation, the cost of litigation, uh, companies are real hesitant about going to trial now. So, you know, it becomes more of a motion practice, litigation practice. And very few young lawyers get a lot of experience with juries. Like when we were young, I mean, we would go trial one or two a month and, you know, get your, you know, even if it was small car wreck cases, uh, really, you know, get your feet wet, learn how to, speak on your feet and talking to a jury. My, uh, my wife's uh, uncle was a, uh, a lawyer here in town back in the day. His name was Edmondson. And he used to tell, it was actually her great uncle. And he would tell stories about uh, the way he prepared for a trial on, on the Friday before he would go to the barbershop, get his hair cut and his shoes shined and he would roll the file up and put it in his pocket. And that was his trial preparation. And he'd walk over to the courthouse and he'd try the case. And Jim Cox, the famous med mal lawyer said the same thing. All it needs is shoe shine and a haircut to get ready for trial. <laughs> it's a little more complicated to prepare a case uh, a these days bit. than that, but- uh, A little bit. Sometimes I think the quick justice, uh, getting, a, getting a quick trial date and just trying the case, uh, there was a lot to be said for that. Couldn't agree with you more. I mean, in general sessions, I tell you what, the other thing that's missing in these days is general sessions court used to mean something. So when I, I you know, I started out, I did my first 12 years as a defense lawyer working for, you know, an insurance defense firm. And we've tried cases every day over there. You have no discovery. You don't know what's going on. You've got, you know, a one page complaint. So you had to learn to cross-examine. You had to understand proof, listen, and, you know, fight that case. And it meant something over there at the time. So that really was a good aid and nobody tries cases over there anymore. Yeah, I know. I know. If, if things were just the way it was, when we were young, Bill, <laughs> the world would be perfect, wouldn't it? Well, yeah. Yeah. But what, what I will give the young, what has improved it totally changed my practice and I'm sure yours is technology has been so amazing. The fact that you used to have to work for a firm and used to have a bunch of secretaries and we dictated and, you know, everything was so slow and you had to print and you had to go down to the courthouse to file. So the technology we have now is amazing to me to be able to email, to be able to electronically file for us to be able to share documents so quickly. And I mean, people take for granted having a word processor. I mean, when I started out, I'm, I'm aging myself. When we started out, it was the, you know, the, the, the purple carbon paper on a typewriter. And so if you made a mistake, you got to start all over. You don't just, you know, press click and keep going. So 
it was not long ago that, um, you know, if you had a big motion in, in any court, really, you would, uh, you know, the staff would spend half of the day or more, the day it was due, collating and getting the exhibits together, the logistics of pulling it all together. Mind-boggling. And now with electronic filing, you can work up to 1150 at night and have it filed uh, on time electronically without having to go through all of that. Uh, it, technology is just, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a help and it's a curse at the same time because it, it just speeds up everything. Even depositions, though, I mean, in, in these medical malpractice cases that I handle, everybody would come to a, to a deposition with eight boxes of medical records. And so you've got carrying trolleys and people carrying on. Now you show up in a laptop. Everything is down on your computer and it's everything's collated. So any medical record you need is at the tip of a finger as opposed to digging through boxes and take it for granted. But that's it's nice to have. I rem uh, the last, the last uh, old man comment I'm going to make. <laughs> is I do remember when I first started practicing at a venerable firm that uh, Armstrong Allen, which is not around anymore. Uh, it's a great firm. Oh, it was a great firm. Lots of really good uh, senior lawyers, particularly. Uh, oh, Mr. Pruitt, Mr. Pruitt. Oh, Mr. Pruitt. Now, Mr. Pruitt, my favorite thing, my one and only interaction with Mr. Pruitt, because I was brand new out of law school. He and I were riding up in the elevator together, and i never forget this, and I, I quote it all the time. And uh, it was in, it was, it was, I guess I'd been there about nine, eight or nine months, almost a year. It was the summer. And uh, he said, young man, what, uh, what plans do you have for the summer? And I said, well, Mr. Pruitt, you know, we're going to, well, my, my in-laws are, we're all going down to the beach. He says, that's good. He says, you can practice more law in 11 months than you can in 12. Now, I'm not sure that the middle-aged uh, members of the firm would agree with him right. based on my billing requirements, uh, but, but he made a good point. You know, you, you can overwork yourself. I completely agree, and you need to be fresh. I think it's very important to take vacation time. I mean, the race is long. You and I have been doing this a long time. This is my 31st year, and truly, I have learned that you need to back it off a little bit. If you want to make it, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And if you want to make it, you got to take a week off. You got to go take a hike in the mountains or go down to the beach and, you know, smell the roses a little bit because you'll burn out if you, if you, because we've both done it when we were young, working those 60, 80 hour weeks just kill you. Well, uh, the, the last technology uh, old man thing I'll say is I do remember when my first year at Armstrong Allen, uh, if you got a fax, they didn't call it a fax, they call it a telex. <laughs> That's right. And they would literally bring it to you on a silver platter. They had a tray that was a silver tray uh, that I think somebody had won. I suspect somebody had won at a golf tournament. And they would put, like it, from, they would like put it on it and they would come into your office. Somebody from the office staff would come into it and be on that tray and they would, you would take it off the tray. Um, that's, that's how reverent. And, and so we went from that to, um, you know, you got a fax every five minutes to, I can't tell you the last time I personally got a fax. Well, you haven't dealt with medical records. Hospitals are like, I always said the hospitals are back in 95. <laughs> People go, oh, I was gonna, what's your email? Well, you can't email, you want a fax. <laughs> hmm. Well, I, I, was, I was quick to say personally, because I'm sure, I'm sure my uh, folks on my staff who, who do, do that sort of thing get faxes all the time, but um, it's not like uh -huh. it, used, it used to be Friday afternoon, you know, you would uh, stand by your fax machine and you, you would get, all kinds of, you know, 
late afternoon things. Especially in domestic relations cases. Domestic relations cases, it's always a Friday afternoon. I'm going to be in court Monday morning on you or something like that or something. Yeah, now they just email it to you. But it used to be the fax. And people would play games and turn their fax machine off or whatever. But I think it's good, too, to have, you know, I mean, you can can be a slave to it. But to have access by email and, and text, I find it great. It saves a lot of problems with my clients is that I always give my clients my cell phone number. And I tell them, hey, text me, call me, email me. I would rather you not do it as, you know, at night or the weekends if it's not an emergency. But it's a lot easier for me if I'm in trial, if I'm in depositions, to simply tell them where I am and say, hey, I'll get back to you. It's gonna, you know, it may be a couple of days, but here's where I am. It makes them feel better as opposed to my lawyers ignoring me. So I'd much rather take the time to return texts and emails than have a client feel like they're not being attended to or they're being ignored. Yeah, I, I give my cell phone out pretty freely and I tell them, look, you know, call me anytime. If I can't answer it, I, w- I won't answer it, but I'll call you back. Right. And I think people kind of respect that. Uh, right. I think some people, again, feel like they get it to slaves to it and never turn it off. Um, I've started turning it off uh, early in the evening and I, I don't even take it upstairs with me. I, I charge it downstairs. And, um, you know, I'll, there's a time in the morning when right before I leave for the office, I'll turn it on, see what I've got. So far, I, I have yet to be burned by that. Uh, and people seem to, it, it, it really doesn't matter what you think. People expect that kind of, of communication, not just with really? their lawyers, but with their doctors, with their veterinarians, with their, uh, you know, with Kroger, I mean, with everybody. And the smart lawyer figures out a way to, to, to give that service or, or he or she won't be in business very long. So on that point, uh, they've done a lot of research on medical malpractice cases and who gets sued and who does not get sued. And I can tell you just from my personal experience, it is not the doctors that perform worse or the least that get sued. It's the doctors who are not nice. It is condescending doctors who talk down to people, who don't respond to people, who act like they're below them. Those are the ones that get sued. I've had clients come to tell me, okay, here's our case. And I'll say, okay, we've got to sue Dr. X and Dr. Y and Dr. Z. And I'm like, Dr. X is really the, you know, the one that did the worst. And he goes, no, 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 I love him. He was so nice to me. Yeah, yeah. I can't, I'm not going to sue him. I want to sue the guy that was talking mean to me. I'm like, well, he didn't do anything wrong. Well, I know, but I just don't like him. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, sometimes it comes down to, you know, play, I call it playground justice. Yes. Very well, Bill, what, uh, I'd like to ask, ask a few questions about your background, just so people uh, listening can understand who, who, the, who we're talking to. Uh, where, you're not from Memphis originally, correct? No, absolutely. I am born and raised. My, oh, okay. I'm sorry. Where, 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 where'd you go to high school? I went to Wooddale High School out in East Memphis. Yes, I know Wooddale well. Graduated in 1982 there, played some sports, and uh, went to Memphis, and it's kind of a circuitous route to being a lawyer. Uh, I'd always wanted to be an architect, so I went to architecture school at Memphis, but it wasn't accredited, and I didn't really understand that until I was halfway through and realized it was going to be hard to get a license to practice architecture with my particular degree, so then I said, you know what, let me take the LSAT, and I became a lawyer, and I started out my first two years with famous, infamous Robert Michael Fats Friedman. And so it was, it was, a, it was a great 
two years, it was pretty crazy. But I mean, we represented the criminal. I did everything. I was in every court. I was in probate, bankruptcy, 201 Poplar, the civil courthouse. And so I got my, my feet wet really early. And uh, people at Hardison, which was a former insurance defense firm, I, I went against them a few times. And John Cannon, if you know John Cannon, offered me a job. And I went there for the next 12 years. And that's where I really you know, made my bones. I tried a lot of cases, uh, did a lot of insurance defense work, you know, defended doctors, used my architecture background. I handled a lot of construction cases, uh, architecture negligence, construction negligence. I handled a lot of big cases like that, products liability, really got experience and even did some medical malpractice defense. And so really was able to get a lot of trial experience and then in 2006, 2003, I'm sorry, 2003, I decided to go on my own because I really always wanted to do plaintiff's work. And it was a defense firm. So that's, that wasn't really going to be a good fit. So I went on my own for just a couple of years. And then my former partner at Hardison, Robert Spence, former city attorney here, and I teamed up. And so I was with him for the next uh, quite a few years, 10 years or so. And then since then, I've evolved, and I'm now with uh, uh, the Walt Cook Lakey firm with uh, John Lakey, Carl Jacobson, John Cook. And uh, we've kind of got a nice little boutique firm. I'm the only one that does plaintiff stuff. Uh, Carl Jacobson does it with me. But we do a lot of work for the city and the state, you know, domestic, a lot of corporate uh, labor and employment, some that Carl does. But I focus mostly on uh, catastrophic tort and representing, you know, injured people and nursing home and medical malpractice cases. Um, well, Bob Friedman certainly was one of the great uh, characters of the Memphis bar. Uh, I predicted his death. Tell me your favorite Bob Friedman story. So I predicted his death 24 hours before it happened. I was, I was trying a case in circuit court. I was defending the case with Ivan Dave Harris out of Cogville. And he had known Fats Friedman. And we were walking around the hall, as you do when you're waiting on the jury. you got a lot of time to kill. So we started talking about Fats Friedman. And Friedman is one of those guys who was brilliant. The people that don't know who he was, he was about 5'10", about 350. Uh, big bushy mustache. He would chain smoke menthol cigarettes, dripping with jewelry everywhere, loud, boisterous, but a brilliant man. A brilliant man and a charming man, except he would lie, cheat, and steal to anyone. I mean, he was, <laughs> he was that kind of guy. And even, even you knew he was lying to you, he was still so charming you know, some kind, and he wasn't always good with clients. And so I told Dave Harris, I said, you know, Fats is so good. I said, but he has done so many people wrong. One of these days, someone's gonna shoot him. It's gonna be like an Ag Agatha Christie novel. There's gonna be a thousand suspects. And literally within 12 hours, Dave Harris called me up and said, you're a witch. Someone's gunned Fats Friedman down at the under North main garage. But we represented, like we represented a lot of the drug dealers. I. There was a, a family called the Bovan family here. Most of them either dead or, you know, in jail. And one of them, there's a famous local rapper. I don't know what your knowledge of rap is, but- Oh, it's encyclopedic, but, but tell me anyway. <laughs> tell, tell me Gotti. anyway for the, for the listeners, tell them- uh, Yo Gotti, Yo Gotti is a descendant of the Bovans. I'm not sure exactly how, but he's a descendant of the Bovans. They once gave him, he had a, a gold nugget ring they gave him. And the center stone of the ring was a green human eye. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was crazy. I mean, we would, I mean, the 
we, we all we all drove cars that had been taken by the DEA and we negotiated back and Bob would take those cars as fees. I mean, it was it was always let's make a deal. We'd go down to the property, you know, to all the, all the property that had been, you know, seized from them. It would be constant, you know, let's make a deal on what the DEA was going to keep and what we were going to keep. But it, the good thing was it was a great primer on law. I mean, we handled a lot of serious cases went to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals on search and seizure and really was interesting. He, in fact, was involved, here's in that story, he was involved in that Dana Kirk case back in the 80s. He had one when, you know, the whole gambling uh, deal about the University of Memphis and whether Dana Kirk threw games, he had one of the, the, one of the other alleged uh, gamblers in that case, and that was a pretty interesting case as well. So he well, was- Well, he was, he was certainly, uh, uh, a member of a group of lawyers it, it, that every city had that very few that very few exist anymore, and that is the true uh, big city general practitioner, who, as you yes. say, would handle criminal, handle uh, personal injury, divorce, all you know the whole gamut for his clients. It's that's very difficult to do now. I'm sure there 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 are folks that still do that. But just about everybody else are like you and me, where they, they tend to specialize in certain areas. I remember Frank Glankler. I mean, he considered himself, he was a lawyer. Frank Glankler was head of the biggest, you know, one of the biggest corporate firms in the city, and he'd go handle a murder one case. I mean, it, and, and, and now this time, you know, Leo Bierman, God bless his soul, just died the other day. I mean, that guy, I mean, he was a corporate lawyer at Baker Donaldson, but he could handle any kind of case. I'm, I'm convinced that he would. A brilliant guy. When, when we first started practicing, I think unanimously he would have been picked as certainly one of the top three lawyers in Memphis, if not the top trial lawyer in Memphis. Uh, and if you, if you didn't pick him, it was probably because uh, you either were or were closely related to uh, the second or third or fourth, uh, uh, you know, also rans in that. But he, he, he was another one that, uh, as you say, God rest his soul, that was... Uh, just a legend in Memphis, and uh, those those guys are those guys are uh, now. There's a whole new crop of of legends, I suppose. I've got a good Leo Bierman story. I think the statute of limitations is run, so I'm safe to tell that story. <laughs> um, so this was probably eight to ten years ago. I was on the Tennessee Board of Professional Responsibility hearing panel, and to those that don't know, that's a hearing panel for discipline. If if a lawyer's disciplined, they're entitled to a trial. And the panel is made up of other lawyers and it's made up of three different lawyers. And you literally go into a courtroom and they put on a trial, the Board of Professional Responsibility puts on their case and then the lawyer is able to defend him or herself. In this case, I was the chairman of the panel, of the three person panel. And Leo Bierman Jr. was the counsel for the accused. It was a female lawyer. He was, he was the counsel for the accused. And what it looked like it really ended up being was it was a domestic relations case where, in my view, and, and that of the panel, the complaining lawyer was really using this bar complaint more of a litigation tool than it was true, you know, malfeasance. And so the board put on their case and, and Mr. Behrman did a great job of cross-examining and, and really establishing the case and really poking holes in it. And so after the board got through, uh, Mr. Bierman made a motion for directed verdict. And so we go back to discuss it in chambers. 
And we all agreed that you know, the motion for directed verdict was well taken, should be granted. But I was able to convince the other two to hold off. So I was like, I kind of want to hear Leo do a closing argument. I said, <laughs> free. I said, we know what we're going to do. Hey, why, why don't we deny this and let, at least let, let me have a free lesson here? So we denied it. And uh, Leo, of course, did a brilliant closing argument. And it was like, man, that was a lesson for me. I later told Leo that story. He just shook his head and had a kickle because it's kind of a compliment. So uh, <laughs> he was great. I mean, absolutely fantastic lawyer. Loved. He and the other one that comes to mind, I tried a case against the great Houston Gordon. Uh, and to those, you know, I know, I know you know Alan, but Houston Gordon was a famous lawyer, a famous trial lawyer. He was first came to fame in that the Malay massacre in Vietnam, where he was one of the lawyers that defended Lieutenant Kelly. And he, he has been a, just an incredible lawyer ever since then. A great plaintiff's lawyer, a great lawyer. He, was a, he would do everything as well. And I was a young defense lawyer. And I had a case against him where I was defending a car wreck. And it wasn't a big case. But we tried that case. And it was the greatest lesson I've ever had in my life. It was more than I ever learned in three years of law school. I mean, watching him try a case. And I remember having to go around the jury box after he got through with closing. And I wanted to pull out my checkbook and write him a check for everything he asked for right then. He was just so great. I mean, it was just what, what a terrific lesson it was to, to learn at his feet. He was just so, and, and, and we talk about Leo Bierman, two totally different styles. Right. Both of them incredibly effective. Houston was more of a, I don't want to call him a preacher because that's derogatory. I mean, it sounds derogatory for a lawyer, but he was more colloquial, more of that Southern charm where Leo had more of that new Northeastern and he was so precise and so succinct with his words that, I mean, it would just take a few words of him to cut right to the core and to the bone to make his point where Houston had a little bit more of a flourish about him. Both of them just absolutely brilliant lawyers. And I just, I, I value being able to have, have participate with both of them. It's amazing. My, uh, my Houston Gordon story, I don't, even, I don't even remember too much about the case, but he and I had a case together. We were on the opposite sides of the case and um, we're going to take a deposition or I think, uh, yeah, we we're going to take a deposition. And uh, he calls me up and he says, Crone, I can't, I can't come to the deposition, but I'm going to send an associate. And um, so it's the, the deposition will go forward. So I hung up the phone and thought, man, I'm in good shape. I'm, I'm not going to have to sit across the table from, uh, as you say, the great Houston Gordon, and who who walks in? His associate was former Chief Justice of the Tennessee Supreme Court Lyle Reed. <laughs> so it was it was fire to the frying pan. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, it, it it wasn't the the relief that I thought it was going to be. Uh, but I I I got a bit I got I came home and I told my wife, who as you know is also a lawyer, that story, and she said, well, that, that's one of the few times where you you don't lead a charmed life, Alan. Oh wow. Yeah. Well, it, it all turned out okay, but uh, that's my Houston Gordon story. His his associate was uh, former associate Lowry, former Chief yeah. Justice Lowry. Yeah. 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 Man, he's still uh, just beautiful lawyer. In fact, in that case, it sounds terrible, but I have to tell you what I told him is his demand was sixty. He tried to get sixty thousand from the jury, and the jury only gave him twenty. You know, we had already offered him twenty five. So, in defense firm parlance, that was technically a victory. But I was so concerned that Houston would think somehow I thought I had done something. So I said, you know, I'm calling him Mr. Gordon. Mr. Gordon, 
I just want to make sure you understand. I know who the lawyer in this courtroom was this week. That I take nothing <laughs> from this. I know who the lawyer was. So please take my compliments and know whatever they did, they did, but it wasn't because of anything I did. So he was well, that's, just uh, that's 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 a that was the right thing to say to him. Oh, and it's the truth. I mean, it wasn't hard to say. I mean, it was like it was. Whew, he was so good. The other thing that I learned about stereotypes and and. One of the first cases I had at Hardison was with David Cook, great trial lawyer. And we were in a huge construction case involving uh, Counts, Tennessee, a paper plant, a, a turbine generator blown up. And so there was all kinds of insurance companies. There was Westinghouse. There was the engineer, the contractor. It was just huge. And these two Chicago lawyers represented the plaintiffs, the, 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 the paper company. And we had one of them. I mean, I was with David Cook, uh, Al Harvey, General Al Harvey, and Robert Moore had one of them. And then Westinghouse was represented by this Washington, D.C. firm. And this lady had handled the entire case. I mean, this case had gone on for years. And we got into the, to the courtroom. Janice Holder was a trial judge. We got into the courtroom, and there was this guy uh, named John Ferguson who was going to try it for Westinghouse. And I'm, you know, I've been practicing three years. And I'm looking at this guy, I'm like, this guy's never been involved in this case. He doesn't know what this, here this guy's coming down from DC. He's coming to the South. I'm like, Oh my gosh, he's going to get his hat handed to him. I mean, this is, I'm like, this is going to be disastrous. And five minutes into his voir dire, I said, this is the best lawyer I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> five lawyers into it. I'm like, Oh, I see. It was such a valuable lesson of don't, you know, don't judge until you've actually heard somebody. He was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant and did a great job and it was, it was, it was well uh, you've uh, you've had a uh, a great start to your career uh, the, the first 30 years have been uh, yes. uh, great it sounds like you've had lots of different kind of experiences what what uh, I always like to ask lawyers this what was what's your favorite what's your favorite moment to you in a courtroom I can absolutely I, I, I can tell you this without even having to hesitate I was trying a case as a, as a plaintiff, and I had not tried that many medical malpractice cases as a plaintiff. I'd lost one, and I was trying a case with Regina Guy against uh, Bill Dunlap. Great, he's retired now. He was a great lawyer, you know, Harris Shelton lawyer. And we had a case involving a little baby that had necrotizing enterocolitis. And we had tried this case and NEC is you get a hole in your bowel and then food gets in there and you end up getting septic. And so the treatment for it is, is to run serial x-rays. And, you know, so you keep looking at x-rays to see if there's any free air, to see if there's any. And so we had gone on and on with these experts and the, and the neonatologist had read the x-ray incorrectly and he missed it. The girl had an anoxic brain injury end up having cerebral palsy. Luckily she lived, but she was just completely impaired. And so I waited until the very last expert because I didn't want them to be able to correct that. Because the only thing in that note was, he said his whole memory was a note. I don't remember anything about this except the note. And he said, no free air in KUB x-rays, which is kidney, utero, bladder x-rays. And his expert, his last expert got on the stand and I rolled the dice to wait for the last expert. He said, man, he did everything right. Even if he misread it, he did what he was supposed to, he did, it was right. 
and he didn't see it coming because I, I got him to admit that the gold standard and the standard of care required him to run LLD x-rays instead of KUB x-rays, which sounds like a technical point, but this guy barked so much, everybody had barked. And this expert, this Vanderbilt former military guy who had just been yelling at me, all of a sudden realized. I walked to the corner of the courtroom. I mean, I was as far away as I could. So doctor, tell me, did he read the right x-ray? No, he read the wrong x-ray. So not only did he not order, he ordered the wrong x-ray. So there was no way he could have read those properly because he didn't order the right x-ray. And the only Perry Mason moment I've ever had like that, <laughs> I put it down and went, yes, he ordered the wrong x-ray. And so by that definition, your definition, he departed from the standard of care, didn't he? And I'm screaming from the far side of the court, yes, he did. And so we go in, uh, we, we do closing, and I'm like, man, I've just killed this. I mean, this, is, this case is over. It took three days for the jury to deliberate. And I'm like, I, I'm, I'm in the dark place. I'm sitting out in the hallway. Alan knows what the dark place is. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I can't do anything better. I can't try a case better than this. If I can't win this case, I don't need to be a lawyer. I mean, I, if, if, I, if with what I just did, if I don't win, I, I'm terrible. I don't know what I'm doing. And so day three, the jury comes and asks for a question. You know, that's common. They ask questions. We can we go home? We're stuck. Can we leave? You know, and you're just, so I had my head down and I just, I'm just so depressed that I put all this time and effort and I'm about to lose this case. And I put my head down and Judge Stokes gets the note and he said, the jury's got a question. No, wait a second. They have a request. They would like a calculator. <laughs> Thirty minutes later, they came back with a verdict for twelve point three million dollars. So that's an easy, that's easy to put a finger on. Favorite, favorite moment as a lawyer is that right there? Twelve point three million dollars. That uh, that that sounds like a good one to me. It was, was a good one. Good one to it was, me. It was, it was a no, good. I day. thought I thought if that if that had turned uh, south on you, um, you know, sometimes the the and you did a good job. It sounds like of highlighting it. But sometimes if you've it, Harry Mason moments are over are usually overvalued uh, because a lot of times uh, it's the repetition that you need to really establish it with the jury. Sometimes if it's just one moment, you know, three or four members of the jury may miss it. Correct. Oh. The way you did it, it was probably hard for them to miss it, but. Um, and, and you have to set that up just right. And so, but, but I learned, let me tell you, I, if, if I may tell you my, one of my failures in, as a trial judge or as a trial lawyer, I mean, that's, one of the things that I learned, you learn a lot from your mistakes and your failures. In 2010, I was trying to case with Regina Guy, lovely lady. And we had a black lady who had gone blind during her C-section because we believed that, they, that the anesthetist let the blood pressure get down too low and she'd gone blind. And during jury selection, there was a black nurse on the perspective panel. And Regina was insisting on leaving this nurse on the panel. And I disagreed because you don't want anybody in healthcare against, you know, as a plaintiff, they're gonna side with them. And Regina felt that her, her race would connect more with, with, with our client, Regina, and that somehow she would give special treatment. And it ended up not being the case. So what happens is we try that case for two weeks in front of Judge Childers 
uh, courtroom. We tried as good a case we could. The late Bill D'Amico was on the other side. He did a good job, but we, I mean, we tried a really good case. In fact, the closing was done on Friday. On Thursday night, my wife was due to give birth the next morning at eight o'clock. I'm like, Judge Childress, my wife's, you know, being induced at eight o'clock in the morning. Can, you know, can we wait till next week to do closing? I said, no, I'll give you till 11 o'clock in the morning. So up all night, deliver the baby. I didn't deliver it, but I was there for the baby being delivered at eight o'clock in the morning. Have enough time in the snow and ice to go shower, walked in the courtroom, Mr. Walk, closing argument. <laughs> and, and my wife had just had a C-section. So I was just obliterated. I was, I was crying for the first 15 minutes of the, of the closing because it was such an emotional event. And this poor lady had, had, had this happen to her. It was terrible. And the jury came back late that afternoon and they came in favor of the defendant. And several jurors emailed and called me afterward and said, hey, it was, you know, it was eight to four in your favor when we first went out. But that nurse on the jury, she picked us all off. She was able to talk medical jargon to us and argue with us. We had no response for that. So we finally just caved in. But that nurse is what caused us to, you know, we, we couldn't fight her. So uh, that's the old Bill Parcells line that I've, I've used since then. It's like, look, if I'm going to cook dinner, I'm certainly going to buy the groceries from now on. Yeah, yeah. The, um, yeah, I had an old lawyer tell me once, um, you learn more from the cases you lose than the ones you win. Absolutely. And that certainly is the, is the case. My, my one uh, story on jury selection, I was local counsel uh, in a, it was a national origin case. And I think it was one of the last cases Judge Donald Bernice Donald tried as right, a district right. court judge. And it's about 10 years ago. And what was interesting about the case is our client was from India and it was national origin. And uh, we're going to, through jury selection. And, and I really was, it was a great learning experience for me because uh, I was local counsel. And for those non-lawyers, that means I was the, the guy from Memphis and the, the real lawyers, the lead lawyers were from DC. And I knew them uh, through some uh, bar association things. So they asked me to be their local counsel. And so I was there for the trial and I didn't have a whole lot of responsibilities. I was just there. Well, one of my responsibilities was to help them with jury selection. And we're, you know, we get down to the end and we had one peremptory challenge left, which is a peremptory challenge is a challenge where you can take somebody off without really having a reason. Can't have an illegal reason, but you don't have to have much of a reason. And uh, there was a, there was a, uh, uh, an African-American lady. Uh, I think she, my, my recollection, she was late fifties, early sixties. And, um, they wanted to keep her on because they thought it was as a discrimination trial. Well, she, she would be an advocate and some things that she had said, uh, made, made them think she would be an advocate. And they said, what do you think? And I said, that lady has seen real discrimination. She knows people who had dogs set on them, fire hoses set on them. She couldn't drink from water fountains. Our guy was just, didn't get a job because of his national origin. And he didn't have that kind of story. Spot on, spot on. And so I said, knock her, we knocked her. And uh, the person we put on was our biggest champion as it turned out in the jury room. 
I know that I didn't know what was going to happen, right. but, but sometimes, you know, you just, you, like you say, you got to, and you got to go with your gut and um, you know, who knows if we'd left her on what would have happened, but I've, I've, I've taken credit for that, for that verdict <laughs> many times because I really don't think that that woman would have been buying what we were selling. I just think people make a mistake in the city of Memphis. Everything's so race-based. Yeah. They make the mistake. Some lawyers make the mistake of looking at blacks as a monolith, as just a single that they all think the same, that they're all liberals. They're all, you know, we're going to be sympathetic to a plaintiff or whatever. And it's just not the case. Many blacks, especially black men are conservative, have a very conservative background, very religious, very conservative. Uh, and so you have to treat them as individuals as you would white people. And so just by virtue of saying, I want, it's, it's very facile to say, I just want black people in my jury. I just want white people. I don't, I mean, it, it's, it's really not that simple. You've really got to take each juror, whatever their color is on a case by case basis and not assume because of their color that they're going to be a certain way. I mean, you never know. It's always a surprise to me. I've tried more jury trials than I can count, probably 80. And it's, you never know, you know, who's going to be the foreman, how they're going to, you know, the guy you think's liberals, conservative and vice versa. It's like, you never really, really don't always know. I mean, and, let me tell you, as far as jury selection, what's really helped us is being able to use social media. So we'll keep somebody back at the office. And so as soon as we get the jury list, we shoot that over. Because I've had guys in there, like I had a, you know, a case where I had a, a Mexican immigrant and one of the guys on the jury looks like just this regular dude, just a little regular white guy. And you look on his Facebook page and he's got machine guns and rebel flags and all kinds of, you know, terrible racist stuff on his on his. Facebook, and I'm like, man, we got to get this guy off of here. But I wouldn't have known it, but for someone back in the office running social media on him. So, I mean, it's jury selection is something else. I mean, it, it really is uh, interesting. In these big cases, do you use jury consultants? I have. So, what I have done, I don't in the courtroom. What I have done on several big cases is used uh, focus groups before trial. So that's it. Kind of helps us develop a profile on what kind of juries we want or what kind of specific juries we want or what we don't want. It's, if, if you've got the, if the case is big enough, it's worth the resources to really try it out with the focus group. And people do a really good job of the focus groups of really, you get to put your issues and they're able to look at, okay, how is this wart going to play or how, how, you know, how do they feel about certain issues? And it is fantastic to be able to watch them analyze because we think we know what, what's important and what's not, but it will amaze you what some people focus on that you thought was a minor issue or not an issue at all. And the big issues are like, ah, no big deal. So it's, those are, are really nice to do. I used to get to do a lot of them as a defense lawyer and I found them so helpful. I had a rape case one time where it was at an apartment complex where a lady was brutally raped in her, in her apartment. And, and so the plaintiff's proof was that, you know, it wasn't adequate security. And our proof was this guy was on a crime spree. There was nothing you can do to prevent this guy. I mean, it was, you know, it didn't matter what you did. This guy had committed a bunch of crimes. He had a big history and he was, he'd been doing a lot of, and so we ran it through a focus group and it really was true that the, the jurors thought, well, why didn't that guy on trial? Why didn't the guy that did the crime on trial? And so, most of the, of the focus group did not want to give a lot of money. 
but the insurance company was it was it was a tough case. I mean, this, the the victim was such a sweet, nice lady. So it was so you were so empathetic to her. They end up paying, and we settled the case. But that was one that I was always interested to see what a jury would have done had we gone to trial. It was a really interesting case. A lot of those cases we settled, Alan. <laughs> I'm glad we settled them. But it's always some of them are very curious. You'd love to know how a jury would handle uh, certain cases. I mean, I'm always, every time I settle a case, I can't help but scratch my head and go, what would a jury have done on this one? So. Well, and the, and the fact is you, you, you don't know. And you don't know, you could try a case and you know what that jury did with it, but you don't know what the next jury would do with it. You know, it, it, and, and I think that's, that's what, uh, it's hard sometimes to educate uh, non-lawyer clients that there's right and wrong. And then there's what happens in court and, and what you can prove, what you can put before the court, what, what you cannot, you can't put what you think happened before the court. You have to think what you can prove. And you just never know how people, like you say, you never know how people, how it's going to strike them. And one little fact that you think is, you know, kind of a throwaway, someone may, may seize on in the jury room, um, either because they have an agenda or because it just strikes them. And um, once that happens, there's nothing you can do about it because the lawyers are sitting out in the hall, <laughs> you know, they, they they so they judge they judge a lot of times a plaintiff. I, I've said this a lot. The, the lawyers are allowed to be jerks and not nice and all that, and because they're like, ah, it's a lawyer, they're expected. But the plaintiff or the defendant is not. Yes. But just just to give you a story, if you've got time for this story, what jurors will do. I had a it's what's called a racist locator case with against uh, Bill Bomar, Blankler Brown, and my good friend Rob Hale was also co-defendant. And what it means is the act speaks for itself. So we had a baby, just to be really brief about it. We had a lady who delivered a baby who was completely healthy. It, it was delivered in seven minutes. The Abgars were perfectly normal. There was no scrapes. And there, was, there was nothing wrong with this child. She holds her baby. She looks at the baby. And because she had what's called meconium, which is, is like a, the baby pooped a little bit in the womb and they had some on her. So just as a protocol, they have to take the baby down to neonatal just to make sure it's okay. That was it. Nurse comes in, neonatal, takes the baby away. It took her 12 minutes to get from the delivery floor, one floor up, with a key to the elevator. When, she, when the baby got up there, the baby was bruised all over the head, broken ribs, distended belly. The baby lived 30 days. And the first time the mother held the baby was when they pulled the plug for the baby to die. Oh no, that is a terrible story. It's terrible. So, and their, and their medical records were changed. By the time we got the medical records, one set of records had one Abgar, then they had them crossed out and they changed them lower. They had whole notes that were changed. We had four or five examples of medical records changed. I got a nurse on the stand to admit, I changed the records. I've never done it in 30 years. I did it this time and I don't know why overwhelming case. The defense was the baby came out that way. There's no way he could have gotten bruised that early. It just the prenatal strips were normal. There was nothing prenatal to indicate that there was any problem whatsoever. Term baby, no indication. So we tried that case. The, the case goes to the jury. It went great. The case goes to the jury. I had a mediation set on a previous case. 
of course, plaintiff lawyers were always trying to hustle. And so Regina Guy, I was trying that case with her. I said, you know, hold the jury. If there's any questions, I mean, just take the verdict, whatever. You know, there's not much that can happen. So I got through with the mediation. It's late in the afternoon. I'm in Germantown. This is true story. And, you know, I know what Mark Twain says about anytime somebody starts off with a true story. <laughs> I call up and the associate, Brian Meredith, he's on the phone. He's going, it's going crazy here. I'm like, what are you talking about? At 430, the, the, the jury gave a note to Judge Karen Williams. And the note says, and I quote, more than two jurors believe they saw Mr. Bomar call us effing idiots. And we want something done about that. Paragraph. We want to quit for the day and we would like the exhibits, you know, to, to, to go back tomorrow. Judge Williams would not pull the jury. Like I've had jury issues before and you pull the jury and you say, hey, can you still be fair? You know, he, we don't think he said it, whatever. Can you still be fair? She wouldn't pull the jury. She made a judicial finding that there's no way Bill Bomar would have said that. And that, but, but I'm also making a jury, a judicial finding that the jury's now tainted mistrial. Mistrial. Yeah. So the next year we tried it again, a jury of all 12 women, 12 women. And you know, the second time is not nearly, well, it went well, but they're, they're ready for all your stuff the second time. 12 women and we went through the whole board hour process. And after two days of deliberations, they were hung nine to three. Judge Williams said, hey, do y'all wanna keep deliberating or do you wanna go home? And my, my line on the record was, that's like asking an eight year old, do you wanna do your math homework or do you wanna go get ice cream? Which one do you wanna do? I mean, that's, that's not really a question. So she hung that jury up. When we talked to the jury, it was nine to three. The nine people wanted to give between 10 and 15 million each. But because it was hung, we got nothing. Mm. One of the, the ladies on the juror was hung was a grandmother who had not, uh, we'd asked her extensive questions in Vordire. She didn't say anything about it. She said, well, you know, something happened to my grandson one time in, in the hospital and nobody did anything about it. So I don't see why he, you know, why this child has something done. That was that was a basis she held for three days on. Right. She held the other two people. Uh, eventually the case settled, but it's just, it's, it's such a crapshoot. The statistics on medical malpractice cases, the ones that go to verdict, return verdicts for the defendant, doctor, or hospital, 80 to 85% of the time in Tennessee. It's that conservative of a state. Yeah, it's, uh, it's ama it, it, it is difficult. Any case is difficult. Any case is unpredictable. And if a lawyer tells you that, that he or she knows how it's going to work out, they're not being truthful with you. Because, you know, both of those stories you just told, um, not unusual uh, in, in, in many respects in terms of, you know, it really does, you know, it, it's not unusual. Um, and, um, you know, a different judge may have done it differently, but probably in the first instance, uh, you know, that if two jurors believe that, it, it's probably a mistrial. Hey, and if you ask me, do I believe it? I know Bill Bomar. I'm not going to say I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say, and he's a friend of mine, but I'm not going to say I don't believe it. Well, uh, I, I'll, leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. 
And when I hear a lawyer say, you know, when I hear a lawyer say they've never lost a case, my first thought is, well, you haven't tried very many. And if you have, you haven't tried any hard ones. So if anybody that claims they've never lost hadn't tried a tough case. Well, they have a very broad definition of winning. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, Bill, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you being on the show. I, I, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the, the stories and the, the personalities uh, that you've uh, brought to life. And um, uh, if, if you need, if anyone out there needs a, a trial lawyer to be your champion, uh, Bill Walk and his firm is, is, they're great and they'll do you a good job. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Alan. It's been a pleasure. Uh, All right. Always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. All right. Well, uh, you're welcome. Uh, just tell everybody, if you've enjoyed this, please uh, forward it to a friend or share it. If you're watching it on social media, uh, please, uh, please go to the Crone Law Firm and like us on Google or give us a review on Google if you enjoyed this. Um, it's uh, very, very helpful for us to get the word out if you uh, interact with us on social media. Again, this is uh, Alan Crone, CEO of the Crone Law Firm. Until, uh, until next time, uh, we'll, we'll, we're going to be getting uh, justice for our clients, just like Bill.